Is it okay for believers to question God? Some people don't think so. When questioning God comes up, they call it doubt, and they say that doubt's a sin, that you shouldn't doubt God, that if God says it, you should just accept it. Now, not everyone is blessed with the ability to simply accept whatever God has to say at face value and move on as if nothing can absolutely trouble them. But most Christians, at some point, are going to raise a question toward God. And there are not a few churches that will actually silence any questions whatsoever. Just believe. Just believe. But in Habakkuk, we have a prophet who does nothing but question God until the end. Here he asks some very hard questions, some of the hardest questions that society has asked of God. And we get to wrestle with his questions tonight. This should be fun. Um, It's been said that Habakkuk is the prophet with a question mark for a brain. Because what he sees God revealing to him is not acceptable. He's not okay with it. So he he has to contend with God and ask the questions. Now, there's, there's, some, there's some good reasons to be willing to question God. And one of those is that questioning God can actually grow your faith. Now, in the moment of questioning, God, how could a good God allow that? Sometimes in the midst of that questioning, you don't feel like you're growing. You feel like you're sliding backward. But it's in the act of questioning that you're going to learn to listen to him, and you're going to learn to find answers from God, and your faith will be strengthened more than it was when you just assumed everything blindly. If you just assume everything blindly, all it takes is one smart critic to crack your entire worldview. If you assume everything blindly, all it takes is one tragedy to make you question the creator of the universe. But if you're willing to let the questions of the soul rise up and then deal with them with God, you will find your view of him firm. It will be solidified. Now, this isn't always easy, and that's why it's called growth. Sometimes it takes years to be okay with a question. It's like, well, we've used this before, but that rock in your shoe, and you just want it gone. But God will let it be there. Just to remind you, you don't know everything, Brandon. I do. Uh, so there's growth. That's, that's one of the things. Another thing that questioning God can do is it can remind you that he's alive. Think about this for a minute. If God was dead, then everything's static, and th- everything that could be possibly known about him can and would be known. You don't question dead people for things that are going on in your life right now. You don't question dead people for things that they're telling you to do with your life, the morals or the code of conduct that the Bible's calling us into, if they're dead. You don't question dead people those things. You say, well, they're dead. It doesn't matter. I'm going to do what I want. The fact that you're questioning God or you're wrestling with something he said or something that's happened is telling your soul that you see a God who's alive, a God who's worth talking to. And there's nothing worse than a faith that is so dead 
that everything that can possibly be known about God is already known. Do you mere mortal think that you can actually know everything about God and have everything filled in with your magic marker? How foolish. If we question anything about God, then it's a sign that he's alive in our lives. Now, some people struggle with this concept because they think I'm saying, if you, as long as you keep on thinking that God's a liar or uncertain about his, what he says and basically what the serpent tried to get Adam and Eve to believe, did God really say? Was it wrong that they wondered? Oh, did he? No, because a good, honest examination would have said, oh, God gave us every tree of the garden to eat. Yay, we're good. What happened is they began to question God and didn't allow God to answer them. So, look, allowing the questions to rise can cause your faith to grow. It can prove that God's alive, but here is the foundational thing we want to see tonight. As you can see, our message is called the wonder within worship. Questioning God the right way will always lead you to stand in wonder before him. It will always cause you to see him as someone beyond your ability to answer everything. And so the questions that bring us to say, hmm, I wonder, can lead us to engage in him in a posture of absolute amazement and wonder. That's what we want, that's what we want to allow questions to do in our soul, is not to darken God as some strange nebulous enemy in our lives, but to illuminate, even with the unspecified aspects of his nature and things he said and done, but to illuminate, even through all those, that he stands remarkably greater, bigger, and more powerful than I. And all I can do is stand in silence before him, to be in awe. So, we want questions that lead us to wonder. Let's look at what Habakkuk questions God about, how he handles these questions, and the fruit of these questions, all right? So, the book of Habakkuk can be divided very, very cleanly into two sections. Section one, uh, questions, good. That's chapters one and two. Or you could actually look at it as a Q&A session, because he asks questions, God answers the questions in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 3, worship session. So um, there are Q&A sessions that sometimes you can do at church, where the congregation gets to ask their wildest questions about God, and we have a discussion about it. Q&A session. Habakkuk does this. Then you have the W&P session the worship and prayer session where you get to sing and magnify the amazing God we have and pray together. So both of those work together in this book. Now, <coughs> let us look at chapter 1. Um, Habakkuk, the, the prophet with a question mark for a brain, is writing roughly 20 to 30 years before Jerusalem falls to the enormous Babylonian empire. Jerusalem falls in 586 B.C., So Habakkuk is probably writing anywhere from 622 to 586, somewhere in there. I would say 20 to 30 years before the fall. So it's very, it's coming very soon. 
And he says, verse 1 of chapter 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oh, Yahweh, how long shall I cry out for help and you not hear or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? God, excuse me, God, all this stuff is going on around us and and you're just standing there doing nothing. You're just sitting by. Why? Or another way to say this is, Lord, why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? And you seem to not care. Why is the justice in the world imbalanced if you are the so-called king of the world? Why is all this going on? Those are good questions. Then he says, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Your law is paralyzed. It's not good for anything right now because no one is being held accountable to it. You don't even seem to hold anyone accountable to it. So what's the point of it? Well, God answers Habakkuk, and he doesn't exactly help him out. Verse 5. Look, Habakkuk, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Pause. You may hear that and think that God's saying, Oh my goodness, Habakkuk, you're asking such great questions, but don't worry about it. I'm going to do something so amazing, you won't even understand it. It's going to all be good. That's one way you could read that verse, but it's the wrong way to read that verse. That's not what God's saying. He's going to tell Habakkuk here, and you're going to see, oh, you think those questions are hard? Wait till you see what I'm about to do. I'm going to blow your mind with more questions that's going to make you wonder, what kind of a God are you? So, what are you going to do? Verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's another name for the Babylonians. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, justice and dignity is up to what they want. They're making the rules. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, (laughs) and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Listen to that description of these people again. I mean, did you hear that description of them? They are violent, they're seizing things that don't belong to them, and they are proud, so proud, he says that at the end, their own might is their God. 
This is an empire, an empire that basically says our king is the God of all. Our military is the God of all. Nobody can stop us, not even God himself, because we have trampled over all the other gods of the other nations as we've marched through the earth. No God can stop us. In fact, all the gods want us to conquer the world. Woohoo! <coughs> so, Habakkuk, you're wondering why I'm not doing anything about the wickedness in Israel. How about this? I'm going to use the wicked to punish my people. Well, Habakkuk doesn't like this answer one bit, and nor do we. So in verse 12, he basically says, my translation, Are you serious? Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh my God, my holy one? We shall not die. Oh, Yahweh, you have ordained them as a, as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Look, you're using the evil Babylonians. We're not ripping off lands from other nations and proud of our strength as its own God and slaughtering all these innocent people as we go around the world. We are beans compared to these evil dragons. 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. He's likening the Babylonians to a fisherman and all the peoples of the earth like fish. Easy catch. 16. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, how could you? Okay, I was complaining about the injustice within my own nation, within Jerusalem. And yeah, it's not pretty, but come on. You're going to exalt the Babylonians over us? We don't even do half of what they do. Look at the scoreboard, God. It's late in the fourth quarter, and they're blowing us out 152 sins to three. (laughs) Well, Habakkuk asks the questions. God doesn't answer immediately. So in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower And look out to see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. (coughs) So in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk decides to pray. He rants a volley of questions. He accuses God of injustice. You holy one are going to use people worse than us to punish us. What? Why don't you punish them? But instead, once he gets all this off his chest, you know what Hosea, uh, no, Habakkuk, you know what he does? He doesn't say, so you are worthless and, 
Thank you. So you are worthless and unfair and slams the door and walks out like they do in the movies. You know, you watch drama television. It seems like every time things get a little too awkward, someone just storms out and the scene ends. And you're like, that's not how it happens in real life. Resolve this thing. You know what I mean? Well, here, Habakkuk does not do that. He wants us to know that you're not supposed to end scene with God. When you have your rant and your yell, that's what sinful doubt does. The atheist, if you will, who wants to defy God, who wants to get others to defy him with them, they throw their rants and their arguments against God and say, we can't find a good reason for what you did so the one doesn't exist. And then they slam the door and walk out, leaving God not a chance to speak to them. That's when questions become a problem. That's when they don't grow your faith. That's when they don't demonstrate a living God. That's when they don't instill wonder within your soul. But when we throw the questions before him, and then like Habakkuk, we climb our tower. I don't know if he literally went in a tower. It would seem kind of pointless because God isn't going to like literally walk up to him. But it's probably a metaphor for I went to my prayer closet. I waited for him. I was looking for his response If we would do that, throw the questions out, then climb our towers and say, God, speak to your servant because I'm confused. I need direction. I need help. I need a little light here. That brings us to the place of prayer that is deeper than praying for our lists of wishes and wants and needs. This brings Habakkuk to the place of prayer where he has to simply listen because he said all he can and there's nothing left to say. Now, we don't know how long he sat here. It could have been a week, could have been an hour, could have been a year. Our questions aren't always answered when we want them to be answered. Because God's into drawing us in on this journey of wonder and discovering who he is. Even if it doesn't come in a solid answer, but it comes in a revelation where you're like, I don't have words for whatever I asked, but I see. I see and feel and know in my soul that this is okay. (laughs) I want you to also notice here that um, this whole time we've been reading Habakkuk, it's very different than the other minor prophets. The other minor prophets are all talking to the people of God on God's behalf. God's like, I want you to tell them that they need to fix this and get their act together there or else. And then the prophet goes, or else, and ducks the tomatoes. (laughs) But here, Habakkuk is talking to God on behalf of the people. God, this isn't making sense. God, the people want to chuck the tomatoes at you for a change. God... He's actually performing the role of a priest here. You see, the prophet would come from God to the people and speak to them. The priest would take the people to God and represent the people to God. And so Habakkuk is actually doing the reverse of a prophet. He is representing the people's concerns before God, which is very interesting. In addition... You'll notice that um, verse 2 began a lot like Psalm chapter 13. How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help and you will not hear? There's a very, there's a very psalmic feel to Habakkuk's words. Then you go to chapter 3. I don't want to give too many spoilers yet, but in 3 verse 1, we see a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shagayanoth. 
which is just a transliteration from the Hebrew. Nobody knows what it means, but it seems to be a musical term. What is conclusive is every single commentator agrees. Chapter 3 is a psalm. Here you have this prophet bringing the people's concerns to God, a prophet who's penning and writing psalmic literature. What do you have? You have someone who is possibly a Levite or a priest. If that's true, this is startling, this is shocking. Because most people walk around with a a genuine faith in God, but some concerns and some, I'm not really sure how this works, I'm not too sold on that, but I believe in God. And so they come to their pastor, and they look at their church, and they look at their pastor as the symbol of belief on their behalf. Well, at least he's got it together. At least he doesn't doubt. At least God always speaks to him. At least he believes. So that what happens on occasion is when a pastor stands before the congregation and says, I have doubts, there's rarely empathy and usually mass panic. It's as if the pastor had said, Korea just launched a missile. Because genuinely, people are looking for the religious establishment to uphold where they're lacking. And if they don't have it together, I'm in trouble. Well, newsflash, I'm not going to... Oh, let me calm the air here. I'm not going to reveal any startling things to you tonight, okay? But there is one real-life thing I have to say. And that is, guess what? Pastors don't hear from God all the time. I remember when I was a youth, and I was watching my youth pastor, thinking, I really want to do that. And there's this image of, he just sits in his office reading the Bible all day, and it's like, oh, Shekinah glory coming down upon him, and he's just writing down. He's like, I'm going to give this to the kids. It's going to be so awesome. They're going to be the holiest kids on the mountain. It's not like that. I mean, sure, there's moments when that happens, and that is indeed what we're (laughs) striving for, but I'm human too. God didn't say, oh, look at all these little mountainlings whatever mountaineers um i'm gonna like put i'm gonna make the ratio off here i'm gonna put most of my revelation to this one person and leave the others in the dark so that they have to kiss his ring and all to understand me that's not how it works it really isn't but so i want you to see though how startling this would be if habakkuk is indeed a levite or a priest and he's throwing out these questions then what's the temple feeling they're like oh no it's really bad now habakkuk is asking questions but i'm comforted by the fact that i get to walk in the mystery of god he's given me enough to trust him the rest he'll show me when he needs to And that's not always comfortable. I'm comforted that he's given me enough and I trust him. But but the mystery part's not always comfortable. But sometimes, friends, we just show up and we keep praying and we keep seeking him. And it's only time that gives us faith in him. So Habakkuk takes his stand and he waits. This is the proper posture for all of us. And guess what? God answers God answers, and we're going to see this for the rest of chapter 2. It's God's answer. I'm going to break it down for you in a second. But I want to point out that what you're about to read is not how God always answers. Not all of us 
or Habakkuk and get to, whoa, whoa, slow down, God, as I write this down. Like, that's not always how he speaks to us. It's not always that clear. But uh, C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, very challenging if you want to be challenged, and it's very heart-wrenching, too. It's his book called A Grief Observed. And it was his notes after his wife had passed away due to cancer. And he never intended to publish this. So they are raw journal entries to God. And there are things in there you're like, C.S. Lewis, the great apologist of the faith, said that? But one of the most comforting parts of the, of the journal entries is where he writes about there are some questions that God cannot answer. Because to him, the question sounds like this. What color is a square? How do you answer that? You don't. And so Lewis then went on to say (coughs) something to the effect of, God will sometimes just give me this, no, child, no, you don't need to know that, and that's enough. And Lewis is like, okay, that's that. And I wonder sometimes if we just, we have our questions are coming from the wrong angle, and we're like, because here, Habakkuk is sitting in time and space, right? He's in a very small sliver of time, a long time ago for us. This is 2000, 2,500 years ago for us, 2,600 years ago for us. Uh, small sliver of time. He probably thought, this is the biggest deal in the world. The world's coming to an end no, I didn't. Billions of people have been born and died since then. And yet he thought his questions were the most earth-shattering yet. I think we often feel that way. But we're just a drop in the ocean. We're just a little speck. And sometimes we think our question is huge, and God's like, ah, that's unanswerable. That's totally unanswerable. I don't know how many feet are in a minute. I have no clue. Um, one more thing, one more thought. This, may, this might be random, but I just need to throw it in there. Um, Tim Keller talks about how people question God and put an unfair amount of burden on God to answer the question. He says they never put the equal amount of burden on them for the question they're asking. And he basically says that just because we don't see an answer doesn't mean one doesn't exist. And it's, it's arrogant of us to assume that we should be able to understand the answer. That's to say that you have the mind of God. Um, also, he says that when you hear somebody questioning the right and wrong of God and what's going on, right there they're affirming the existence of God. Because on what basis are you judging right and wrong? If you're saying God is doing something that's not right, that it's wrong, that it's unfair, that there's evil in the world, where did you come up with the definition of evil and good? If you came up with the definition, you can't blame God for what's going on. You defined it that way. So therefore, you're implying that someone else set the system up, someone beyond you. And so Habakkuk, like I said earlier, you're proving God's alive. He's proving the sovereignty of God just in his questions. But he prays, and he waits, and so should we. Don't end the scene. Let the scene linger as long, as silent, and as awkward as it may be. Let it continue, because you just might miss what God has to say. Well, let's not miss it. Let's get to it. Verse 2. 
So God's second answer to him, and it's a long one. First, he says, Habakkuk, you need patience. So verse 2, And Yahweh answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. (coughs) For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. But if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Habakkuk, the answer's coming. And when it comes, write it down in letters so big that anyone who's just running by can read it. But Habakkuk, it may feel slow because I'm sort of patient. God's patient. I don't know if you've noticed that. He can be very slow. It may not come when you want it, but just wait, just wait, just wait, because it will come. I'm guaranteeing you, Habakkuk, an answer exists, and it's coming to you. You may not hear it when you want it. That's why you must stay in a posture of prayer with the pen ready to write what I tell you, because it is coming. It will surely come, he says. So be patient. God's second answer. So you need patience, you need endurance. Verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. I believe he's alluding to the Babylonians here when he says the soul's puffed up. It is not right within him. But, and here's the contrast. You've been wondering about the Babylonians. How are they getting away with this? And you won't let us get away with that? And God says, hold on, okay? Be patient. And now you need endurance because, look, his soul's puffed up and it is not right. But you guys, the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. (coughs) You need endurance. I understand that that may not be clear when you read the text, but let me point out two things. First is this. When it says the righteous shall live by his faith, it isn't saying that you need to have the faith understood in your head. That you need to have the belief system there and say, I believe in God the Father, I believe in His Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's not the faith he's talking about here. Because he says, you will notice, he shall live by his faith. It's not my faith to proclaim. I'm not making this stuff up. I don't get to create the beliefs and then say, I have faith in them. It's not mine. My faith is in God, right? So that's not what we're talking about here. The righteous shall live by his faith. Another hint is that when um, you read the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, do you remember this? We explained a few weeks ago, roughly 100 years before Jesus was born, most of the Jews were, Greek was the language of the world. So they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And what's interesting about that is you got to see how they were reading at that time and what it meant to them. And they, the Greeks, translated it like this. But the righteous shall live by his faithfulness. (coughs) And then also, um, so the New King James, my translation, the English Standard Version, translates by his faith, but the New English translation, the New Living, the NIV, uh, they capture this and say, by, they shall live by his faithfulness. Uh, the CEB, the Common English Bible, actually says they shall live by his honesty. The righteous shall live by his honesty. 
That one feels a little out there. But then I found out that the Hebrew word here, when it talks about faith, is usually used to describe someone's character. Which then demands that you read this not, you shall, the righteous shall live by his confidence in God. No, not that. The righteous shall live by his loyalty, his faithfulness, his allegiance to God. That is what I believe the text is trying to tell us. And why God is saying, look, be patient, the revelation's coming, but also endure. You need patience and endurance because, yes, it's going to be brutal for a while. The wicked are going to have their way for a long time. But if you endure, if you choose to be loyal to me, you will be saved. This also tells us that God is more interested in our loyalty to him than he is in our certainty about him. Did you hear that? He's more interested in the fact that we walk with him in loyalty than that we understand everything about him with certainty. I don't know that God's offended if I'm confused by aspects of his will, his plan, what he does, who he is. But I think he is offended when I turn my back on him and worship someone or something else. Or when I give my allegiance to another king. God's not asking you and I to be perfect in what we understand. He's asking for us to be loyal in where we stand. Okay, now he finishes his answer third. So, I, hey, you need patience, you need endurance. Now let me throw you some assurance. I got this, I got this Habakkuk. I got this, Christian. I got this. So the assurance comes, verses 6 through 20. This is great. The assurance comes in a taunt. A taunt with five woes. So basically it's a huge, huge, huge taunt that God is making about Babylon, saying, ha, you think you're great, but you're not. And he does it in five woes. So in my translation, the English Standard Version, you see the word woe. What I love is in the New English translation, which is um, one that um, um, Thomas Nelson has recently put out, and it looks really good. They put a bunch of footnotes in there to show you everything that's going on in the languages. It's cool. They have this really interesting way of putting the word woe, and I have to share it because I think this just makes a beautiful reading. When you read the word woe, they translate it as, you are as good as dead. <laughs> Isn't that great? So keep that in mind. In fact, I'm just going to read it that way as we go, okay? Um, well, I'm going to try. It might be hard to insert, but... Okay. To him who leaps... Oops. To him who heaps up what is not his own... This is verse 6. He is as good as dead. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who make you tremble... Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. So the table will be turned. You're plundering everyone? Well, think of them as debtors, and they will call for your debt soon. For the blood of man and violence of the earth to the cities and to all who dwell in them. Verse 9. To him who gets evil gain for his house, he is as good as dead to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. 
You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. So he's building this wealth, this fortress at the expense of human lives. You have forfeited your life. For the stone wall, or the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Verse 12. To him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity, he is as good as dead. Behold, it is not from Yahweh of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. By the way, verse 13 reads as a question in the ESV, but it makes most sense when it's a statement. God did not create us to merely labor for fire or nations to worry themselves for nothing. What he did create us for is verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Oh, Babylon, you think you're great. You think your empire is spreading across the world. Look what I'm going to spread. First, I'm going to spread you like butter over toast. And then I'm going to set up my glory over all of that. Verse 15, number four. To him who makes his neighbors drink, you are as good as dead. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. So basically you got parties and making people get drunk so they can sleep around. Um, verse 18, moving on. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Verse 19, the fifth taunt. To him who says to a wooden thing, awake, he is as good as dead. To a silent stone, arise. What? Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Curtains closed. Last word, right? Now, God can end scene. That's his job, not our job. God, you're unfair, end scene. No, he's like, no, no, wait, hold the curtain. I have an answer. Now close the curtain. Because Babylon doesn't get a chance to respond, and Babylon, well, they've stopped talking. They're gone. (coughs) Okay. So we said, questioning God, it can be beneficial if it produces wonder in our soul. Does this happen for Habakkuk? Do his questions produce wonder? The answer lies in chapter 3. And since he wrote a psalm, he's ending the book with worship. Yes, yes. Wonder is all over Habakkuk's life. I want you to notice, too, he has questions. So what does he do? He goes to prayer, and he ends with praise. You see this in the psalms. Every The psalms have some very hurtful things to say to God. Especially Psalm 89. It literally, basically just says, God, you lied to us. You said we'd be a kingdom forever, and you broke us. You lied. You did not uphold your promise. But Psalm 89 also ends with, alas, something will work out. Psalm 89 is in the middle of the Psalter. Lots works out. You know how the Psalms close? The Psalms of Hallel, or uh, the Psalms that end with hallelujah, the last five, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, here Habakkuk ends with praise. 
a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to this Hebrew tune. Verse 2, O Yahweh, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Yahweh, do I fear or do I stand in awe or am I amazed? In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. So in other words, what you used to do, revive it now. Do it today. In wrath, remember mercy. So God, yeah, you're going to bring on the Babylonians. I know I can't stop you, but please remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of praise. Now this is going to be very poetic and it may not make a ton of sense, but all you need to do is get the sense of wonder here. This is a big God. Some of what you just read was, um, it, was a, it was a way of describing the Exodus event because those are some of the regions in which it occurred in which they traveled. Now in verse 4, His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations, and the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land in Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Yahweh? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? The implication is no. No, he wasn't angry at the creation. And the answer is going to come later. He was angry at the nations. Um, You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its head on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. So here's God pictured as a warrior and all of creation at his summons, all of its trembling before him as he comes to conquer. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Now, threshing is when you separate the chaff from the wheat, something you did at harvest, and often you would have a sled with knobs with nails or rocks embedded in the sled. And actually, you'd put a child on it, and you'd pull the sled over the wheat, and it would separate the chaff from the grain. Pretty cool, huh? Well, God's saying, I'm doing that to the nations. Not very cool if you're them. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people. So the whole reason the warrior came is for the salvation of his people. Israel, look, Babylon's going to have it, okay? They're going to have their day, but the warrior will come from heaven for his people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Wow, some cool things there. Talking about saving his anointed. Of course, Jesus, that's the Hebrew word Messiah, which is what Jesus was called. And then he talks about piercing the enemies with their own arrows which is what Jesus did on the cross as Satan tries to kill him. Death ended up defeating Satan. It was kind of a cool boomerang effect. Um, Verse 16. 
I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. You hear his confidence now in what God's about to do? He's there in verse 16 saying, look, I know it's going to be really hard for a while, but I quietly wait for the days when God brings trouble on the people who invade us. I've learned, I don't get why God allows things to happen for so long, but I've learned that eventually the table does turn. And I want to be on the right side of that table when it turns. So Habakkuk wants to say, I'm not very certain about what he's up to, but I want to be loyal to what he's up to. So his loyalty, his declaration of allegiance is how he closes the book in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stall, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. So though everything fails and everything's gone, I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation, Yahweh the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Yeah, it's going to be rough, but he's going to give me feet like a deer so that I can endure. To the choir master with stringed instruments. (coughs) Yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. Friends, here's the conclusion. The goal of our Christian walk is not perfection. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So you didn't all fail, okay? This week you didn't fail because I know you weren't. I know you weren't perfect, and I think you weren't perfect. Um, I was pointing at empty seats. Don't worry. I. The goal is not perfection. Now we know that in a work sense, right? I think most of us are in tune with. I can't be good enough for God. Jesus came to be good enough for us. Yay! You got the basic concept of Christianity. However, I think what we then do is, okay, so we're saved by grace through faith, so my faith needs to be perfect then. It seems that we have this tenacious, ruthless root of perfection always crippling our lives. And we might have gotten down, I won't act perfect, but I'm going to believe perfect. I'm going to get my theology right. I'm going to understand the Bible. Everything will be my ducks will be in a row. That's, by the way, why I go to Calvary Chapel. We all know they have the perfect interpretation of Scripture. <laughs> we laugh, but there are actually people that think that. Um, now, I do happen to like our interpretation of Scripture. It happens to be why I'm here, but, you know, it's another matter. Um, however, so we've only shifted perfection to what we think and believe and feel about God. Friends, that's not the goal. The goal is not perfection. The goal is chapter 3. It's praise. The goal is praise. God wants his glory, chapter 2, verse 14, to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The goal is praise. The goal is that while we wonder, we stand in wonder at his majesty. 
That's the whole reason God has made himself infinitely beyond what we can comprehend while he'll allow us to wallow in our doubts and our despairs and our questions and say, but, but I don't know how to answer the journalist who said, either God is not God or he's not loving because a tsunami wiped out all these people. I don't know, but I'm going to stand in wonder before him who made the sea. I don't understand. My understanding isn't perfect. That's not the goal anyways. The goal is that he be praised. And along with that, we realize with Habakkuk that to praise God is a simple choice. It is not something that arises out of the perfect circumstances. It's not something that we do simply when we feel it. Because Habakkuk said, if you look at the last verses, though the fig tree should not blossom, basically read, Bank of America goes bankrupt. (laughs) That can happen. And every other big bank, and the government doesn't bail them out this time, and the fruit be not on the vine, so the shelves of the grocery stores are completely empty. The produce of the olive fail, so we have no more gas for our cars. And the fields yield no food, so we are all eating our woolens, or I mean our leather boots, because at least it's once was meat. Um, Because all of this is going on, despite all of this going on, yet I will, those are words of affirmative action. I will praise him, or he said, I will rejoice in him. And so here's, here's, here's the conclusion that it's not certainty, but it's loyalty. Because certainty comes and goes. You cannot control your certainty. You can read every book you want. You can't control your certainty. You can control your loyalty. That's your choice. And the last song the worship team sang, Move On. And that gave us a lot of scenarios that are just like this verse. Everything's going out. Move on. It's a choice to do Prayer and praise with God. But I do want you guys to have hope as we come to communion in that faith isn't mine anyways. We talk about our faith. We talk about who has strong faith, my faith. But my faith is not determined on my level of certainty in God. My faith is dependent upon Christ, who was faithful because I sure haven't been. My faith is in him who did precisely what God asked. My faith is in him who was patient at the Father's will. And my faith is in him who doubted the path of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, please let there be another way. My faith is in him who wondered why God abandoned him while he's on the cross. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet remained on the cross because he somehow knew this is loyalty to the Father. My faith is in him... Who demonstrated what God is and who he is? So I don't need to have strong faith. I just need to put my faith in someone who's strong. And that's where it lies. So come to the table tonight, uncertain, confused, wandering about and groping blindly in the dark. There is one thing that's certain tonight. And I think it's no mistake that Jesus gave us communion in physical things that we can eat. 
Much of our, our Christian life is spiritual and invisible, but he gave us communion as something you can hold, touch, and taste, and smell, and feel all the senses because he wanted us to have at least that much certainty that no matter how dark, how confusing, he became flesh and proved that we were worth loving that much. That will carry you through life. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled by your greatness, and we are humbled by our arrogance.